to Deuteronomy chapter 24, Deuteronomy chapter 24, that's page, if you're using that blue Bible, that is page 166, Deuteronomy 24. By the way, that part where I jumped in there, that was unscripted, I just saw this look in Wes's face like, I've had those moments where I'm leading worship and I just go, what am I doing up here? Right, so that's all that was. It was nothing. So I was trying to help him out. So, so. All right, Deuteronomy 24. Um, what you have is you have God giving, re, reminding them of his law as they get ready to get into and enter into the promised land. Here's how you're to conduct yourself while you're there in this, in this promised land. And so you'll notice how he does it. What I want you to pay attention to is the centrality of God's redemptive work, how God's redemptive work is motivation, it is the fuel that fires our moral and ethical actions. God's redemptive work is the ground, it's the fuel that fires our moral and ethical work. That's what you'll notice as we listen. So starting at verse 14, Deuteronomy 24, 14, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor or needy whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns, you shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to Yahweh, to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that Yahweh your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner the fatherless and the widow that the Lord, that Yahweh your God may bless you and all the work of your hands When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So God's redemptive work is the very backbone and the very structure that grounds any moral and ethical actions we we do. So then... James chapter 5, James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, that's on page 1013 as we continue our series through James, Hand and Heart. And that the title of the series has come from, um, I forgot her name already, Hannah Moore, her poem, where she wrote it on James, if faith produced no works, I see that faith is not a living tree, this faith and works together grow, no separate life the heir shall know. Their soul and body, hand and heart, what God hath joined, let no man part. And so hand and heart, is where we, that's where we got the name of the series. And so James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. What I read to you from the Old Testament and the New Testament is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the Lord of hosts, who hears the cries of your ravaged righteous ones. Bring us to see you better as we see each other and to humble ourselves before you, knowing that you will lift us up. Amen. You may be seated. So do keep your Bibles open to James chapter 5, 1 through 6. is where we're planting ourselves today. And there are sermon notes on the back of the worship guide. There are questions at the end for your care groups. So on a cold, gusty morning in 1985, they buried Orville Wood, Orville Wood in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Now, Orville was 102 when he died, and he had, there was almost no one attending the funeral. Now, you may think, well, of course, he was 102. All of his friends were probably dead by this point. But even none of his children, nor any of his grandchildren, could muster the heart to come to the funeral. You see, Orville was a miser. He had impoverished his family to build his own personal wealth all stingy and tight-fisted. For example, and this one always grosses me out, for example, he would, let, he would not let anyone use more than two squares for the toilet paper roll when they went to the restroom. That's bad. He forced his only son to sleep in the pantry at night and his only daughter to sleep in the living room so he could rent out the bedrooms for some extra cash. It was so bad that after the divorce of his second wife, she mournfully stated, quote, I am left broken down in middle age. Why was my economic status less than that of a servant? My life was tortured because of Orville's love for money, which was his master passion, end of quote. Some 11 years later, William Green reported on Orville and the terrible life of his children. It was published in Worth magazine. Anybody remember Worth? That's a long time ago. It was 1980s. Nobody remembers it. Okay, I'm the only one. All right. But it was published in Worth magazine, and Green, the author, made the observation that, quote, in the real world, old misers, old misers seldom learn to cherish their children as much as cash. Old misers seldom learn to cherish their children as much as cash. My friends, James, right here in James 5, James is dealing with Christian Orvilles in his day and in our day who are inside the Christian assembly and he is exposing their master passion as he talks about the rich, but then he looks at the ravaged and he lands on the righteous. And there's the three points, the rich, the ravished, the righteous. And so the rich... This is the third group, as I've been emphasizing and Wes has emphasized last week, this is the third group that James is targeting since chapter 4, verse 11. This is the third group he is targeting who are part of the disease. They're, these are another one of the groups who are part of chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, who are part of all the fighting and arguing because their, de their desires and passions are dominating them. And so they're murderous and they're covetous in this disease. Even chapter 4, verse 4, they are the adulterous 
friends of the world and lovers of the world. They are not part of the remedy. They are not part of the humble, repentant remedy. They're not those who exhibit the wisdom from above, chapter 3, 17 and 18, which is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, where a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. These are not the, the people who have, who have uh, submitted to God, who have resisted the devil and watched him flee away, chapter 4, verse 7 through 10, who have submitted to God, who have wept and mourned and uh, cleansed their hands. These are not those who have submitted or humbled themselves to the Lord Jesus who will exalt them in due time. In fact, it's very interesting, back in chapter 4, verse 9, when he gives the direction to weep, that word weep in the Greek is the very word that shows up here in chapter 5, verse 1. James is calling these Christians to chapter 4, 7 through 10. Come now, you who, uh, I'm sorry, come now, you rich, weep. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's what he's getting at. He's trying to draw them. He's telling them that the door is open is what he's doing. So he's connecting them in that word back to chapter 4, 7 through 10. These are the third group of the proud who are opposing God. Who think that they have all the power and moral right to determine their outcomes like the businessmen that West was talking about, Pastor West was talking about last week in chapter 4, 13 through 17. And so to help us to see their terminal condition, we need to remember what is not under fire here by James. What is not under fire by James. Obtaining wealth and being well off is a gift of God. Let me just say it again. Being, having wealth and being well off is God's gift. We hear it both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's very, very clear. Deuteronomy chapter 8. God says, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my might have gotten me this wealth. No, you shall remember that Yahweh your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get the wealth. The wealth is not the problem. It's the misplaced perspective. And so the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 6. When Paul says to young Pastor Timothy to talk to the rich in his church, he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Interesting, pride and wealth here seem to go together at times. Not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The problem is not the wealth. So James is not targeting wealthiness. Are you all getting that? you understand that? James is not targeting wealthiness. He was not a Marxist. Okay? But what he's talking about and targeting is the way the wealth was gotten. The way the wealth was gotten. That's what he's targeting as you read this whole passage. So I want you to notice that these wealthy are Christians. They are inside the Christian gatherings who claim to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, Mike, how do you know that? Because of verse 1. He anticipates they're in the assembly when this letter is read. And so he speaks to them pointedly. Come now, you rich, and weep. Well, there's not going to be non-Christian wealthy in their churches, more than likely. So there's that assumption. These are people who claim to be Christians, who are miserly in their actions. They're this kind of people. 
And so they're within hearing distance of this letter, is what he assumes, because they're inside. In fact, he's actually already started addressing the wealthy inside the church, clear back in chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, when he says to the Christians, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the field we pass away and wither, etc. So he is talking about the wealthy, specific wealthy, a specific group of wealthy people inside the synagogue. And so here James is pointedly returning to this group of folks because several of them have, and here's the four sub-points, several of them have hoarded up, held back, lived large, and lawyered up. There's the four sub-points, and we're going to break this down. Yes, I spent three hours on those four. First off, these folks have hoarded up their wealth. That's what he says in verse 3. He uses different words, but that's what he says in verse 3. Let me read verse 3 again. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. They've hoarded up. They are acting like the man we read about before the confession of sin that Jesus talks about from Luke chapter 12. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he tells a parable about a man who has prospered, and what does he do? Does he think about sharing it? Does he think about working some other way, maybe of spreading this about? No, he says, I know what I'll do. I will beef up all my retirement programs so it's all about me, 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 mine, 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 mine. And God says to him that night when he is asleep, what did he say was the first word? Fool! There's nothing wrong with saving up money. I've got retirement stuff, and hopefully, hopefully most of you are starting to get there. You need to. This is not about saving up for that. This is hoarding up. Saving just for me. Right? Piling it up just for me. Thinking that I'm going to be like the guys in chapter 4, verse 13 through 17, Paul, uh, Wes talked about last week, who thought they could go anywhere and produce all the outcomes they wanted when they actually should have been saying, if the Lord wills that we live another day, we'll go do this or that. These folks were hoarding up. And then notice, as selfishly harmful as that is, the real damage is caused because they held back. That's verse 4. Look at verse 4. They held back. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, you have kept back by fraud. They held back by fraud. Those wages and laborers are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. They've held back. They, they cheated to cheat your employees, to cheat your contract laborers, flies in the face of God's directions from Old Testament to hear the New Testament. You think about the passage we read in Deuteronomy 24. And they should have known what it is to be cheated because they had been slaves in Egypt whose whole lives and livelihoods have been stolen from them for centuries. And so... In Leviticus chapter 19, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. The same things are said in Jeremiah 22 verse 13, Micah 3 verses 9 through 12. Now, we don't pay daily wages hardly anymore. 
most of the time we all agree 15th and end of the month or end of the month or whatever. We, we, but that's the point is that it's when we're supposed to be and we've agreed this is when the wages are paid and then the company doesn't pay the wages or we don't pay our wages to those we've employed when we're supposed to. These people have cheated and they have stolen rightful wages being controlled by their passions and desires and claiming that they have a right to do so, that they are entitled to do so. Very much like the social leaders in Ezekiel's day, in Ezekiel 22, verse 27, her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. The hoarding up and holding back. They've also then lived large at the expense of their workers. So verse 5 is because of verse 3 and 4. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. They were able to live large because they've hoarded up and held back what was rightfully belonging to others who they had employed. This is not a redistribution of wealth scheme. This is just legitimate, honest business. And they've not been legitimate and they ain't an ounce of honesty to them. So they've hoarded up, held back, lived large, and then to make matters worse, to add injury to insult, or insult to injury, whichever way you want to throw that phrase out there, they've lawyered up. That's verse 6, they lawyered up. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. That Greek word for condemned is katadikos. You try to learn Greek. I just slaughtered the word. But it has, it is truly about being condemned and declared guilty, but it has a very thick legal flavor to it, a courtroom flavor. What they've done is they have finagled the courts to be on their side. So they've gotten kangaroo courts, basically. They've twisted justice for themselves against those whom they have unjustly withheld wealth. What these wealthy Christians are doing that James is referring to in chapter 5 is they are actually following their non-Christian wealthy counterparts. Listen again, they are following their non-Christian wealthy counterparts. We talked about this in chapter 2. Back over in chapter 2 when James is talking about the poor and the wealthy, he's talking about the poor of the congregation and the wealthy in the city, in the county, because of the way he uses the language. And so he says there in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And so these particular band of wealthy Christians he's referring to here are those who are following their unbelieving, affluent clique. They're following their unbelieving, affluent friends over at the country club or down at the city hall or on the golf course or wherever it is. They're following their, their pattern. And so by doing so, remember chapter 4, verse 4, by doing so, they have made themselves adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Their master passion has blinded them to what they are doing. 
Therefore, they are truly part of the disease and not the remedy. That's the reason why James brings in all of this Old Testament language about this rotting language, this damning judgment language that's piled onto them here because that's what God has always said about those who will misuse their power and position to get more wealth and do so at the expense of legitimate employees underneath them and so forth. God has always said these things about people like that. And if they persist in doing that, they are the proud whom the Lord opposes. Chapter 4, verse 6. Well, my friends, these are the rich whom James targets. But then he shows us the ravaged and the righteous, the ravaged and the righteous. Very much as the blood of Abel cried out from the ground after Cain had slain him unjustly. James says that the stolen wages and the sapped workers have, tr- have cried out and are still crying out. Look at verse 4. This language is being lifted right out of the Old Testament. Verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters, now quoting Deuteronomy 24, 15, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Think about what God says to Cain back in Genesis chapter 4. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. That's Old Testament judgment language. And here are the workers crying out to the Lord of hosts. And probably what should have shaken these wealthy Christians who were misusing all of this to their boots was what it says. And He has heard them. But also notice that the ravaged have given way. The very end of verse 6 He does not resist you. That Greek word is the very same Greek word used back in chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud. They have not opposed you. I want you to notice how the ravaged here have not taken up the arms to go throw off the wealthy. They have no power. You know, it's too easy for the oppressed to turn into oppressors. It's too easy for the aggressed to become the aggressors. It's too easy for the violated to become the violent. But they didn't. They've not resisted you. They've not oppressed you. They've not, res- or they've not opposed you. Excuse me, they've not opposed you. Very interesting. These are the voiceless and the vulnerable, very much like the Orphans and widows of chapter 1, verse 27, that James refers to. And you also heard the connection between uh, the wealthy, the, the uh, employees getting, uh, not being wronged in Deuteronomy 24, not being wronged, and then how often God brings in also the orphans and the widows and the sojourners. This all fits together. These are the voiceless and the vulnerable, very much like the orphans and widows. And I want you to realize that there's not anyone to stand up for them in this day, in that day. Apparently, no court was going to stand up for them because they were wowed by the wealthy. 
There was no recourse to reparations. They had nowhere to go. There's no arbiter. There's no mediator. There's no police department to restrain the bloodshed. Now, we read that and we sit back pretty smugly and say, yeah, but our court system and our police department and all that, well, praise God. But most of the world doesn't have a clue what kind of a world you live in. You're a one-off in the Western culture and those influenced deeply by the Western Christianized culture live in a weird environment because most of the rest of the world through most of the rest of the millennia have no idea what it's like to have have somebody with some kind of power to step in on their behalf. Gary Hagen, who's, who's the president of International Justice Mission, wrote a book called The locust effect. I highly recommend it. We've been supporting, our family's been supporting International Justice Mission for years, for almost two decades. His big concern is human trafficking. And this book, which you ought to read, you begin to realize two things. Number one, we live in a wonderful place in America. Praise the Lord. As bad as cops can be, and cops are human, sir, they can do it. As bad as judges can be, hey, they're human, they can really mess up. We live in a far better And you read it and you realize, oh my goodness, that's most of the world almost all the time. I highly recommend the book just to give you some grounding so that you're not quickly swayed by the siren songs that tell you, oh, this is a horrible country, we all need to become whatever, right? I highly recommend it. It'll help put James into context for you and why James is writing the way he's writing. And so these truly are the ravaged, And what did they do? They did the only thing they could do. They went to the only hope of justice they have. They went to the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies. But what more do we know about these ravaged ones? They are the righteous. That's what James calls them down in verse 6. Now, I want you to realize what James is primarily concerned about in his letter. He's primarily concerned about what is happening inside the sacred societies. And if these are Christians who are wealthy, who are wronging the righteous, that means these are Christians attacking and demoralizing and demolishing Christians. That makes it even worse. Now, it's not that it's okay for us to go running around and cheat unbelievers and treat believers as better. No, we heard in the law. We heard in the Old Testament because God is always concerned about us being fair and not being partial, not not showing some kind of partiality. So again, in Leviticus 19, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. I redeemed you. Here's how redeemed people treat others. I redeemed you. Here's how redeemed people treat others, both covenant members and non-covenant. But James is primarily focused inside the sacred society. Because why? Because of Jesus. Because of the grace of God in Jesus. James knows. He's heard Jesus. He was walking with him. He knows what's supposed to be happening. That we're to instinctively treat fellow believers to treat one another in a way that proclaims to the whole wide world that the new heavens and new earth 
where righteousness dwells has already begun in the here and now and in this place. We're to instinctively treat one another in a way that proclaims to the whole wide world that heaven and earth are beginning to become one. And so really, James's whole point is that the greater the privilege redeemed, the greater the responsibility. The greater the privilege redeemed, the greater the responsibility. It's because of chapter 2, verse 1. Go back and read chapter 2, verse 1. Because of chapter 2, verse 1, we have a whole new way of treating one another. God's redemptive work in Jesus Christ changes our morality and our ethics. It grounds it. It fuels it. It's not about earning God's favor. It's because of God's favor we live as different people. As as James says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, as I said, these ravaged souls are believers. They're probably some of those James was referring to back in chapter 2, verse 5. When James wrote, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? This is believer language. Sorry, I'm going to have to do this. I disagree with Pope Francis. God does not show partiality to the poor because they're poor. He shows partiality. He doesn't show partiality. He doesn't show favoritism to the poor because they're poor. Right? So this is not about all the poor. James is very specific about who he's talking to. Those who are rich in faith, who happen to be poor. Sometimes verse five gets, chapter 2, verse 5 gets misused. So James says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? That's believer language. If that's the case, then that means the wealthy Christians whom he is is rebuking in chapter 5 are those who have been ravaging fellow Christians. It's just just mind-blowing. You've been redeemed. You've been set free and you didn't deserve any of it. How can you mistreat your brothers and sisters that way? And yet there's another level to this, and it's hinted at by the wording. First off, notice that James says that they cried, the cries of the ravaged have come to the Lord of hosts. Have come to the Lord of hosts. Who is the only person mentioned in James by name as the Lord? Chapter 1, 1, chapter 2, 1. I asked this the other day. Who's the only person named the Lord here by name? Chapter 1, 1, chapter 2, 1. Look at your Bibles. Jesus, the Lord of hosts. James is actually taking that Old Testament title and he is saying Jesus is Yahweh Tzebeoth, the Lord of hosts. Another little emphasis to his eternity and his divinity as well as his humanity. He then characterizes who the righteous are with this language. And I want you to notice this language and see if this language happens to sound familiar to you at all. You have condemned as guilty in a court system. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Does any of that sound familiar? Does does any of it sound familiar? Do you know someone who was actually condemned in a kangaroo court 
Even though the civil government said several times, not guilty, this guy has no guilt. Yet he was still tried anyways, because he was guilty till proven innocent. He would never be proven innocent. And then he was murdered, and he didn't resist. Does that sound familiar to you at all in any way? Can you give me a hint? Give me some help here. Who would that sound like? Jesus. Isn't that interesting that James uses Jesus' language when he's talking about God's people? He's ravaged. He's actually using Jesus' language. Why would he do that? Dear friends, we need to get this concept in our minds, and I don't know why we, won't, we don't do it very well, but sometimes we do in our better days. But behind every believer, behind every believer that we engage with, behind every believer that we self-righteously judge, behind every believer that we slander, behind every believer whose feet we wash, behind every believer whom we work with and serve with, we should always see the shadow of Jesus close at hand. He identifies himself with only one group of people. There's only one group of people he identifies himself with. In Matthew 18, he identifies himself with covenant children. If you mistreat them, you're mistreating me, there will be judgment to pay. In Matthew 25, when he tells the story of the king coming to separate the sheep from the goats, and he says to the sheep, you know, you visited me while I was in prison, you fed me when I was hungry, you dressed me when I was naked, and so forth, and all the sheep went, huh? When did we do that? And the king answered them saying, truly I say to you as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. There's only one group of people he's identified that closely with, so closely that he says to Saul, when he knocks Saul down to the ground, remember Saul was persecuting God's people, right? Hauling them off to jail, even participating maybe in their murder. And what does Jesus say to Saul? Saul, Saul, why are you... Me, Jesus so identifies with his people, this is what the union of Christ is about. We are united to Christ by grace alone. So identified with Jesus, so united to Jesus, that the way you treat one another is the way you treat Jesus. The way I treat you is the way I treat Jesus. The way you treat each other. Behind every Christian, we should see the shadow of Jesus. It just change, when you have that in your head, it changes the whole way you engage, or should, completely. So as we wrap this up, James is not worried about the wealth, it's the way some people got their wealth. Does that make sense? You got that, right? And these folks, these wealthy folks, what did they do? They hoarded up, they, they held back, they hoarded up, they lived large, and they lawyered up. Only for themselves. That's all they cared about. And they misused people, and especially they misused Christians. And lastly, to see that the way that we treat one another is the way we treat Jesus. We need to see Jesus that close to each of us. And so, dear friends, 
Let us have our hearts and our eyes trained to see the shadow of Christ looming around our brothers and sisters. And then let us together submit to God. Resist the devil, the slanderer, and watch him flee from us to draw near to God who draws near to us to cleanse our hands and lament our failures and happily humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who will lift us up. Let's pray. Lord, we confess to you, even if we don't have a red scent to our names, that we have covetousness lurking in our hearts, greed, pride. We could just start naming all of those. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to always remember that you have redeemed us, and here's how redeemed people treat others. Help us to exhibit the same grace that you show us, to exhibit the same charity. Help us, Lord, as we engage with one another as Christians, that we would always remember our Lord Jesus. We would always remember that these are united to Christ as well. We pray also, Lord, as we think about it, for places where people live and there is no police department to defend them, no court to rise up on their behalf, no arbiters or mediators, and they have no justice. O Lord of hosts, we fall down before you and we implore you on their behalf. Rise up for their defense. Rise up for their defense and rescue them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.